0: bulletins out with you you have your own translation in there and a place you can ask questions of us so please use that and the rest of you it is printed in toto in the esv translation in your a bulletin for you before we go to god's word let's go to him together in prayer now <clears throat> oh, father god as we come to feast upon your word today lord we ask that you would sanctify us in your truth we confess as your son taught us lord that your word is truth Oh, send your Holy Spirit now to open this text up to us and us up to it. May we be changed, Lord, by our encounter with Jesus today, knowing that all Scripture points to him and is useful for our education, our edification and correction. Oh, change us by your word today is our prayer, Lord, offered in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you're uh, enjoying our journey through Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is this ancient wisdom book that is surprisingly applicable to us today about our hungers and our thirsts and what we look for in life. And as we get into this part of chapter 2, I want to just kind of remind you, those of you who've been around church world for a little while, you've heard of Evangelism Explosion. Those of you who haven't been around church world, you may be familiar with some of the questions. E.E. made famous two questions and I want you to think of the second question, if you're familiar with it, it goes like this, as if you were standing before God, and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? See, that's a question about justifying yourself. It's a question about give a reason you should be here. George Bernard Shaw, famous for some of you, was an early 20th century socialist, and he has this famous quote where he's doing it tongue-in-cheek. It's sarcastic. You can actually see a real recording of him doing this on YouTube if you search George Bernard Shaw. Um, But he's not serious. He's doing it tongue-in-cheek. He's basically trying to, he, he asks his capitalist friends to justify their existence, prove you produce more than you consume, prove you have value according to your own worldview and if you don't then you should just end it all because you're a waste of resources now yes as all people do he's trying to argue against something so he takes it to a straw man extreme but you get the point justify yourself according to your worldview he's using humor to critique a worldview we all live in and our culture as a very economic-based, capitalist culture that has s- captured the way we think as well. It changes how we look at Scripture. It changes how we look at our Christian life. It changes how we measure things. We think in terms of value. We think in terms of worth. We think in financial categories about so many things. I want to give you a thought experiment. You ready? I want you to think right now. How would you convince someone else to love and appreciate something that you really appreciate. But you can't use the words or the concepts of value or worth. Wouldn't the first thing make, this is so valuable, no, well, this is really worth, uh, well, it's hard. We could do it, it's not impossible, but it's not our first instinct. That's similar to where we are in Ecclesiastes, why I wanted you to do that. Because this pastor, this philosopher, who either is Solomon or who's writing kind of under the guise of Solomon to, put, to use his life as the example, is trying to get us to say, how do we justify our life in this world? How do we justify our life in this world? He's trying, if you remember, the whole book to understand the point of life under the sun is the phrase he likes to use. And all he comes up with is Frustration. He's tried religious behavior, as so many of us have. He's tried education, as a lot of us have. And he finds no real answers in either of those. Then we saw that he uses his vast resources to engage his flesh to find happiness. He, the, the greatest fulfillment that that celebrity, pro-athlete, or Hollywood culture can provide. Unlimited resources to just indulge whatever you want. And he confesses it doesn't satisfy him either. He's stuck in a boring, predictable, unfulfilling life. And so he pauses at this point to kind of analyze his attempts thus far because he really wants an answer. And here's what makes this so helpful for us. We're all on this quest. We may not articulate it, but every one of us, we are trying, we are experimenting, we are analyzing, we are dreaming fantasizing of a better life more fun less stress more joy less pain we're always trying to figure out how to get there we may not talk about it we may not even admit it to ourselves easily but that is the quest of people under the sun to find rest to find fulfillment to find satisfaction here and now And it seems that we keep coming up empty. So with that in mind, as that background, let's go together. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. This is God's Word. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, As there is more gain in light than in darkness, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all <clears throat> will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. And this is God's word. So it's a nice, uh, upbeat, happy text for us today. We're going to walk through. Those of you who are visitors here are looking at the person who brought you, going, what in the world did you bring me to today? But here's where we're going to go. It's going to get better, I promise you. Here's where we're going to go. I want to give you a theme sentence to help you remember. And when I give this to you, it's written written for you in your bulletin. This is for your benefit for later, not for right now. Here's what you do at lunch today. Instead of going, well, what did you think about church? Okay, great. And we're done talking about it. You can say, hey, kids, Pastor Sean said, and you can repeat the sentence. Did he do it? How did you see that? Kind of start conversations about things. So I hope you use this. We really want you to use these bulletins uh, in your personal uh, family devotional life. So here's where we're going to go today. Knowing we will die and be forgotten breaks our heart. Unless we're wrong. How's that for a cliffhanger, right? See, what we're going to look at today is we're all hefting around our life for meaning. But it only makes us hate our life. But instead, we need to hide our life somewhere better. So let's look at that together. Let's look at this idea of hefting around our life, of dragging around our life, trying to justify ourselves. Solomon starts up this passage in verse 12. He realizes he is uniquely positioned with all his resources, with all his wisdom... If he couldn't make life work, who could is the question he asks. He lived the dream life that so many people have of what makes you happy. He had all the money he could want, nice houses. He tells us he had wine, women, and song, literally, and it doesn't make him happy. He has the divine gift of wisdom. If you remember the story of Solomon, he asked, Lord, would you make me wise? And because he didn't ask for wealth and riches and stuff, God gave him wisdom. Now, in church world, we hear wisdom, and we immediately think of that verse in Proverbs, right? Oh, Wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Wisdom is being godly and sanctified and being a... Yeah, but that's not what he's talking about. Wisdom is also one of those words that's used in a very big sense. It's actually the word used for craftsmen. If you had a skill at something, you were wise. If you remember, those of you who are cognizant in the Old Testament, the King James description of building the temple. Remember, Solomon wanted people who were wise in the working of stone. It means to have skill at life. Here's what it means for Solomon today. Last week, through pleasure, he was looking ultimately for freedom. No constraints. Do whatever he wants without God's input and maybe he can be happy. This week, through wisdom, he's looking for control over the frustrations of life. Wouldn't you like some control over your life? Don't you find yourself looking for ways to kind of reign in the outliers there and kind of get some predictability in some aspects and control things. That's what he's doing. In a world of frustrations, in a world of uncertainty, he's looking for stability and certainty. Solomon is our boy here. He's doing exactly what we do. This is right up our alley. So let's see what Solomon has to say to us. And right up off the bat, I love how he writes this as if he's really trying to talk to people in real life and not just writing poetry. He kind of comes up with, as I was studying this, like, well, This is like the well duh of the Old Testament. He says in verse 13, you know, I think it's a lot better to live with wisdom than with folly. To live selfishly and indulgently versus living with skill. I think it's better to live with skill. And you kind of want to go, well, gee whiz, Solomon, you think? Did you come up with that all on your own? You know? But then he gets a little deeper in verse 14. You can kind of start to hear that Alanis Morissette song, ironic, playing in the background as he, as, as he writes verse 14. He observes, you know, Mr. Practical Do Good follows all the rules, Mr. Rebel breaks all the rules, and they both die. You would think the wise would have an advantage, but they don't. Wisdom may help in life, but it doesn't stop death. And you, you kind of sort of want to step back and you're like, wow, that escalated really quickly to death, Solomon. But he's really struggling here. He's, he's like, Look, I am the wisest person ever. God has given me amazing wisdom. It's given me this lifestyle. And I'm still going to die just like that guy there. Look at him. He's a moron. What is the point? It's so frustrating to him. So he lands on verse 15. Look at that with me. <clears throat> then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, "This also is vanity." Here's how we did it for the kids so they can understand. Boys and girls, look with me at your verse 15. Here's what, here's what he's saying, he's saying, "I realize that even though I am wise, there's no point to wisdom if I will die just like the fools do." Boys and girls, have you ever had a situation where you've been good all day? You've done your chores. You've used your yes ma'ams and your yes sirs. Little brother has been rotten all day. And at the end of dinner, they pull out the chocolate cake and he gets a slice too? What? That's what Solomon's saying. What's the point of, you know how much I suffered to be wise and he, oh, kidding me? See, if wisdom is so much better, if having control over your life is so much better, shouldn't there be some sort of payoff? but there isn't. You still die. Death makes all the wisdom and all the folly of life meaningless, Solomon says. And this is personal. I mean, in this verse, he's basically saying, look, I should be happy. I have supernatural wisdom from God, but I'm not fulfilled. Now what? See, he's not alone in this sentiment. Maybe some ancient thing from the bible doesn't quite do it for you remember at easter we shared this longer quote from leo tolstoy the famous russian novelist just want to give this short version of that quote remember what what he said he said is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death cannot destroy at the height of his career he's one of those few authors that's famous in his time he knew he'd be remembered he knew that people would be studying his novels and he still said this at the age of 40 See, functionally, most of us live this way. We may not you know, actually say to each other, you know, as we're sipping coffee somewhere, like, doesn't death make us all meaningless? You know, that, that's not a way to win friends and influence people. But functionally, we all see problems in the world. Social justice and racial reconciliation are big topics right now in most people's minds. And we all long to see solutions. We may disagree with what those solutions are, but most of us want to see some sort of solutions to those things. But why are there so few actual, workable solutions? I mean, with all the talk about them, where's the work to fix them? You see, when it comes to real-world involvement, here's where I'm going with this. It's hard to get people involved in significant things that cost toil time sweat in a post-christian culture it's hard see every culture gives you a place of your a story about your place in the universe where you belong what you do and here's the problem with a post-christian culture if eventually the sun is just going to burn up and destroy anything we've ever achieved as a species why should you give your blood your toil your tears your sweat to solve big problems Why not be selfish and just get it all for yourself? It's all going to burn in the end anyway. Why not just look out for yourself and your own interests? And that's why we have all this talk about issues, but we have very few actual people doing something about it. Our culture is in the same place that Solomon was. Again, we we may not articulate that intellectually, but functionally we do. Here's how others have said it. You know, how about the famous existentialist philosopher, not a friend of Christianity by any means, Jean Paul Sartre? You've probably heard that name. You may not have read him, but he's influenced your life. His ideas have impacted how you think. Here's what he said He said, Look, life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. Nothing. He went on to write the famous little pamphlet about his whole worldview. He called it nausea. Just being in this world. Okay, maybe that maybe maybe y'all haven't read your Sartre lately. Okay, no problem. There's another book out there by an author named Greg Easterbrook. This one's really good. The book's called The Progress Paradox. He shows all this data that Americans have better lifestyles. It's always improving. Our our relative education, relative health, relative wealth is all getting better in the last 60 years. And yet, we're not happier. In fact, we're less happy than we used to be. And it really bothers him as an analyst. And so he starts wondering about this, and he comes up with his conclusion. Here's what he says his conclusion is. He says, you know, people grow steadily better off, yet seemingly no happier. Because there's a baseline anxiety in all our hearts, and that anxiety is the fear of death. Let me ask you are you happy? I mean, really happy? What grounds you in this life? What gives you hope? What gives you power to continue to strive every day and not just fall into a pit of despair? See, these are real questions. Those are the questions or why people from a successful family running a beautiful business reject running that business and go off and study medieval French poetry instead of business at college. This is why midlife crises happen because why work, 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 play, repeat? Why? It's just exhausting. And so we try to bury that, don't we? We try to stuff that down with shopping more or accumulating more money or indulging our darker side in in places or maybe it's overeating and gluttony or, or pornography like we talked about last week. Because ultimately we're afraid of this is all there is and we have no control. Couple that with the routine of week in and week out life under the sun and dealing with the frustrations and you get just, I hate life. Frustrating, it's empty, it's vanity, it's vapor. And for many people, many of you in the room, that frustration leads to hopelessness. And Hopelessness leads to being despondent. Despondency leads to depression. And once depressed, you go darker and darker and darker and you don't know how to get out. If that is you, by the way, if you're finding yourself getting deeper and darker into hopelessness, into depression, there is hope for you, there is lightness for you, there is joy for you available in Jesus Christ. If you don't know him as your Savior, we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but those of you who do know Christ, you can get depressed as well. You can still struggle with darkness and depression and wondering what's the point of even living. Satan loves to convince Christians to commit suicide. He's unfortunately quite successful at it. So, dear Christian, if that is you, if you are struggling with depression and darkness, just being sad and unhappy, the first step to recovery is getting help, is admitting, I need I need help. Can I just in- invite you? This radical experiment. You ready for this? Come to a Sunday night small group, and they get to the first question. Say, can, I, can I just say, I don't really know you all that well. We've been together as Christians for a while. I am really depressed and sad, and I don't know what to do about it. And the most amazing thing will happen. No one will stand up and be like, what? Get out! Only happy people are out here. Instead, some other person in that group will, will say, I do too, and I'm so tired of hiding it. What do we do? And together, you can find help. If you are struggling With depression, the very first lie your heart tells you is you can't tell anybody. No one can ever know. Yes, they need to know. Get help. If you don't want to talk to a small group leader, come see me. Come see John Mark. You will have people all around you who can help you find hope in the gospel. Unfortunately for Solomon, he did not have that in his life. So instead of hope, after hefting around his life, he ends up like so many of us, he ended up... Hating our life. In verses 16 through 17, he moves beyond frustration to hating. I love how honest the scriptures are here. I mean, nobody would make this stuff up about Solomon. This is one of those areas you have to look and be like, oh, this this must be some sort of special revelation because you don't do this to an idealized king who's so rich, who's so powerful. He wrote the book of Proverbs, he's so wise, and yet. He's unabashedly admitting that he is so frustrated at life that he hates it. You don't make this stuff up. See, I love it because it means Solomon is just like us. He gets so frustrated with life in this world that even though he's in relationship with God, even though he has wisdom from God, he's still just like us. He's so frustrated at the world that he cries out, I hate this place. And he's very specific about why he hates this place. His frustration has led to hatred because, he says in verse 16, there's no enduring remembrance. See, he's not just concerned that people won't remember him. It's deeper than that in his culture. Here's what's going on here. There's this odd thing in the Old Testament wherever God does something really neat, really really kind of new, if you'll allow me to use of an actor, really cool. For his people, God has this weird habit of saying, okay, I want you to stop everything and make a pile of rocks. Okay. I mean, they crossed the Jordan, he did it. Jacob's Ladder, he did it. There's several places God said, stop what you're doing, make a pile of rocks. And then he'd say, why? Because generations from now, as you're walking by and your great-great-grandchildren said, what's up with the pile of rocks? You can tell them the cool thing I did here. And throughout the Old Testament, they call those things a remembrance, a memorial, a memorial. Something amazing took place here. Something noteworthy took place here. Something significant happened here. See, Solomon hates his life because even though he's the wisest man on earth, even though he's the greatest pleasure seeker on earth, we saw last week, he's unhappy and he's unfulfilled because he realizes nothing significant and noteworthy comes from my life. I've made no difference. There will be no pile of rocks for future generations to say, what did God do there? There's a pile of rocks for for Solomon. Why was I even born? I've just wasted air. Now, before you start sarcastically thinking, oh, poor, poor, pitiful Solomon, must be tough, be the richest king ever, have all your fleshly desires met, you know, it stinks to be you. You've thought things like that, too. And you know you have. Remember, these people in the Bible are just like us. Here's what Solomon's doing. As soon as you think about it, oh, it's obvious, yeah. Solomon is looking at everything he's done in his life, everything he is, and he's looking over his shoulder at Dad, King David. And he is looking at this huge shadow of unbelievable greatness in battle, unbelievable greatness in governing a people, unimaginable greatness in the Lord. And Solomon has lived his entire life in that shadow. In spite of his wisdom, in spite of his wealth, in spite of his women, his life will not be one of those monuments to the great work of God the way his dad's was. You and I may not be living in the shadow of a famous ancestor, but each of us struggles don't we with a desire to make our life better and usually we've picked out one person who we look at as more successful or better or somehow they're beating us somehow and we want our lives to make a difference we want to know that the good we've done will be remembered we don't want it to be forgotten we we long and thirst for that and we're so afraid no one's going to even know i lived now, as I was studying this week, what kept coming to my mind was how universal this is across human experience and across cultures. What kept coming to my mind, is so I want you to reach back in your memory to 10th grade. Now, I went to high school in Memphis, so it's not that different from South Carolina, so I hope you did this. I hope you still do this. But remember in 10th grade, you reach back in 10th grade, and you had to memorize, you had to read Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Remember that? And you had to memorize either Mark Anthony's funeral speech or Brutus' funeral speech. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Okay, okay, reach back and re- think about it. Okay, I'll give you the first line, you'll recognize that. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. That's not familiar to anybody, right? Okay, this means yes. Okay, right. Okay. So this right, that says, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Okay, the second line, right, which most people don't know as well, is what? I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. And then he quotes Ecclesiastes and says, The evil that men do live long after. The good is often interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. The noble, I'll I'll stop. I could totally do the whole thing. I'll stop. So, anyway, see, Shakespeare gets it. The evil that we do is, that's what people remember. The good, forget that. It's right where we are, right where Solomon is. No one's going to remember any of the good that I do. Any good that I do is going to die with me. This is the language of mattering, of being significant, of recognizing, I was here. Remember me was important he realizes that in this world his life is not important and that causes him to hate his life and so look with me at verse 17 so i hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after wind life under the sun has become grievous to him that's the idea of causing pain, of bringing misery. I wanted you to get this, boys and girls. I know you don't use grievous that, that much, so here's how we translate it for you. Look with me at your verse 17 in your bulletin, boys and girls. It says this. It says, life under the sun breaks my heart. All of it is like trying to catch the wind in your hands. Haven't you been sad for and you don't even understand why, boys and girls? That's what Solomon's talking about here. Knowing that we will die and be forgotten, it breaks our heart. Looking around the world as it is today breaks our heart. If this pointless life is all there is, it leads to despair. And again, functionally, this is real. We may not say these things out loud, but this is real. Remember what I told you three weeks ago? The unofficial subtitle of Ecclesiastes, you can write it in your book, is what? The things we think but never say. Because in church world, it's not godly to talk this way. You know that here in our country since World War II, that the number of people in America who, according to polls, say they're very happy, that percentage of people has nosedived in spite of how our quality of life has increased. And the percentage of people since World War II who are depressed has increased Ten times. I mean, everything our country has achieved. I mean, you realize most of us in this room live in a house that Solomon would go, whoa, at, right? And still, our country, our people, we're more cynical and depressed and upset than ever. And so, you know, and in the light of that, of that knowledge, so few of us, what, turn the iPod off, so few of us get off Pinterest or stop Facebooking or quit watching the game Whatever it is we use for distractions, so many of us never turn the distractions off to really think about our life. That's why they're called distractions, right? Because it breaks our heart. And this world is so full of what? Beauty and boredom. It's so full of laughter and lament. It's so full of birthday parties and funerals. It, it, this is all there is. There's nothing else past our death. What's the point? See, Solomon has reached the end of wisdom. He was divinely gifted for it, and it still didn't fulfill him. He has no answers under the sun, and so he just hates life. (sighs) Should we all go home now, or do you want me to try to make it better? Yeah, it's been heavy. So instead of hefting our life around, instead of of hating our life, what the Scriptures would have us do, what the message of the gospel in Jesus Christ would have us do, it would have us hide our life Remember what we said, Ecclesiastes raises the questions that the rest of Scripture answers. So what I want you to do to get us into the mindset, okay, how do we fix this, right? Think about the New Testament story of Jesus raising Lazarus. We've done this before. There's this wonderful moment in that story where Jesus shows up. He knows Lazarus is going to die. He purposely delayed so Lazarus would die. He shows up People are wailing, they're mourning, they're weeping. One of Lazarus' sisters grabs Jesus at his feet. She's crying uncontrollably. Jesus, you could have been here. You could have fixed us. Why weren't you here? And I want to pick up the story in John chapter 11, verse 33. It says this. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Uh, If you'll allow me to translate that into modern vernacular, Jesus was heartbroken and ticked off. See, instead of hating life and ranting about it for no end like Solomon, Jesus hates death and he does something about it. He not only raises Lazarus, Jesus will go on voluntarily to give up his righteous life and voluntarily die. And since the wages of sin is death, Jesus Christ, the sinless God-man, didn't earn those wages. The grave could not hold him. And so when he burst forth on that third day, he defeated death forever. Jesus Christ didn't hate life. He hated death. And so he ended it to give purpose to life. So for those of you who know Christ... You don't have to heft your life around like Solomon, trying to prove your worth. Christians still get frustrated at life in a cursed, fallen world. But we don't have to fall into that hatred like Solomon did. We don't have to fall into that despair. We don't have to heft our life around and hate our life because Christ hides our life. Here's what I mean by that. I want you to look with me, which I think we have on a slide, Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. Paul gives us this promise about Christ. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, for those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior, those of us who have been united to him by faith, our life under the sun has ended. We died, that old person died at the cross, and we were born again in Christ's. And this promise says literally that our life is encrypted with Christ. As long as he lives, we live and are safe. He holds on to our life. He gives us significance because in him we are adopted, beloved children of the king. Heirs of all the promises of God and heirs are never forgotten. They are sought out so they can be rewarded and gifted. Oh dear Christian, that is what you have in Christ. If the frustrations of this world come and get you, fall back on the grace of God. When this world makes you wonder if you matter at all, look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and see that He willingly died to bring you into His family. He thinks you're that important. And He encrypts your life with His, uniting it to His so as long as He lives, you live. What an amazing promise we have. Praise be to God for those of you who do not know Christ, for those of you it's Mother's Day, Mom wanted me to come to church, so I'm here, can you, lunch is waiting, let's go. You can have that life as well. You really can. Really think about your life. Really think about the lives of those around you and ask yourself, why is everyone I know so frustrated and dissatisfied? Why does it seem like everybody complains quicker than they say something good? That's called divine discontent. Because we were made for a a different world, a better world. And because we are made for a different world, we're not satisfied here. The discontent you feel, the discontent people see all around them, it's to help you look for something better. You can try hiding your life in this world through control. You can try through being a good citizen or being a good employee or through community service or the opposite way of indulging in your fleshly desires. But it still ends up, instead of hiding your life, it's you hefting your life around like a burden, trying to prove you matter. And eventually it'll make you hate your life. But you can have freedom and acceptance, significance, and an inheritance in Jesus Christ. The grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ is yours for the taking Take your frustration, take your discontent, and turn to God in faith. Ask him to help you, and he will give you help. He will introduce you to his son, and you two can hide your life with Christ. He won't say, perform for me, clean up your life, and no, he'll say, You are dirty and messed up. Let me help you. That's the gospel. He offers you that today in Jesus Christ. You can hide your life in him and find significance and happiness it sounds so superficial when i say it that way but we all want to be happy don't we it's a deep desire it can be yours in christ let's pray together